Sunday, November 29, 1992, was a long day for Sarah Tokars. She and her two sons pulled into their upscale home in Marietta, Georgia, about 30 minutes north of Atlanta. They'd been on the road for over nine hours on their way back from a Thanksgiving trip to Sarah's family home in Bradenton, Florida. She promised to call her father as soon as she and the boys got home, a call she'd never make. What happened to her and why is an unbelievable story of greed. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. I'm Chris. Sarah Tokar's youngest, four-year-old Mikey, was asleep in the back seat as she pulled into the garage. She fumbled for her house keys as her six-year-old Ricky and the family Springer Spaniel Jake waited impatiently to get inside. But somebody opened the door before Sarah could unlock it. A 22-year-old drug addict named Curtis Rower stood on the other side. He brandished a sawed-off shotgun and ordered Sarah and Ricky back to the car. Jake barked out of control, but with one swift kick, Curtis shut him up. Then he climbed in the back seat behind Sarah. Ricky sat up front. Mike, still asleep, was oblivious to the whole ordeal. Curtis held the gun to the back of Sarah's head and ordered her to drive. She begged him not to hurt her or the kids, and according to his eventual confession, he didn't want to. A man named Eddie Lawrence paid him $5,000 to kill her, but he hadn't paid up yet. Sarah stood in the way of bad men making dirty money. With her gone, they'd all be a little richer. But Curtis was getting nervous. He thought Eddie had abandoned him, leaving him with little direction and no way of getting home. So he ordered Sarah to drive him to an Atlanta housing project. He figured he could catch a ride and get rid of her when they got there. But the upper-class housewife rarely left Marietta. She avoided the big city unless she was going down to her parents in Florida. To Sarah, Atlanta was a scary place full of crime, drugs, and violence. At least, that's the impression she got from her husband, Fred Tokars, an Atlanta prosecutor turned criminal defense attorney. To speed things along, Curtis gave up on the idea of a ride to Atlanta and instead ordered Sarah down a dim, dead-end street about a mile from her house. When she pulled over, she begged him to leave them alone. She offered up her purse and the family car, but tension escalated when little Mikey woke up. The confused child tugged on his mother's sleeve. There was a strange man with a gun sitting next to him, and all he wanted to do was go home. Then, like the mastermind villain in a James Bond movie, Eddie walked up to the car. At the sight of him, she knew she was in real danger, the kind no amount of begging could save her from. She'd never met Eddie, but she knew her husband was into some dirty dealings, and she'd been on the verge of blowing their illegal drug-running and money-laundering scheme wide open. But she didn't go down without a fight. According to police reports and Curtis's testimony, Sarah died trying to save herself and her children. She screamed bloody murder and pushed Ricky's head down toward the car floor. She jerked the wheel and slammed on the gas trying to run Eddie over, but before she could, Curtis pulled the trigger, putting a bullet in her head at point-blank range, right next to her children. He bailed out of the car as it rolled across the street and through a field, and he and Eddie made a run for it. Once the car stopped, Ricky reached over his mother's body to turn off the ignition. Then he grabbed his brother, and the two ran hand-in-hand hand to a nearby house. A man answered the door to find two frightened boys covered in their mother's blood. The beginning of the end for Sarah came in 1984 when she reconnected with her future husband. 
They had both gone to the same high school in upstate New York, but when they met again years later in Georgia, she was in marketing and Fred Tokars was an up-and-coming attorney. They were married the very next year. By that time, Sarah was hoping to start their family and Fred was looking to leave the DA's office and start his own practice. There was more money in defending criminals than prosecuting them and he plastered his face across every billboard he could find. People around the DA's office called him Fast Fred for the high-octane lifestyle he enjoyed. He loved fast money, nightclubs, women, and bragging about his violent cases. But he had a dark secret. He knew so much about Atlanta's seedy underbelly because he was Atlanta's seedy underbelly. Cocaine was the drug of choice in the 1980s. If you were in the drug game, Miami powder was your ticket to millions. But as the government cracked down on money laundering, it became harder for the kingpins to move their cash without attracting attention. That's where Fred came in. He broke away from the DA's office to open his own practice in 1986. Instead of putting criminals away, he'd get them off the hook for a price. He also offered his expert advice on how to skirt the new money laundering laws. He'd eventually pen an article in the Atlanta Business Chronicle detailing how drug dealers consulted with attorneys about how to launder their money legally. Much later, as the truth about Fred came to light, many believed his article was nothing more than an advertisement. Other than law, Fred had his hands in several Atlanta nightclubs. He and his client-slash-business partner, Eddie Lawrence, used the clubs to launder money for high-level octane dealers from Miami to Detroit. Dealers shipped their drugs as far as Los Angeles, and Fred used his legal expertise to hide their money in offshore bank accounts. Nightclubs popped up overnight, and the cash businesses worked as the perfect cover for cleaning the dirty cash. But running a massive underworld operation came with its share of paranoia. His took the form of verbal, emotional, and physical abuse at home. He even told Sarah she couldn't work outside the home or even open up a credit card in her name. He kept her on a tight $400 a week allowance and disapproved of her seeing her close-knit family. He wouldn't give her money for hotels and gas when she wanted to head down to Florida. And since he didn't allow her to work, she didn't have her own money to spend. If he did allow the trip, Fred forced Sarah to make the nine-hour drive with the kids while he took the one-hour flight. Fred's need for control manifested into physical abuse shortly after Ricky was born. Another Atlanta attorney and family friend invited the Tokars to a party he was throwing, but Sarah called privately and said the couple couldn't make it. Then she leaned into the phone and confessed she wasn't well. She had bruises up and down her arm from where Fred hit her. She made the attorney promise not to tell anyone, especially Fred. She gave birth to Mike in 1988, and by then she'd grown suspicious of Fred's shady business dealings. He'd rarely come home at night and spent most of his time in the city. He was irrationally frugal for a successful Atlanta attorney. He could afford all the billboards he wanted, but refused to make any repairs around the house, including fixing the air conditioner and a broken lock on the sliding glass door. They lived in Kings Cove, an upscale housing community in Marietta, Georgia, but while their neighbors enjoyed the swimming pools and tennis courts, Sarah sat like a prisoner in their crumbling home, though the one place she was never allowed to go was in the basement. Fred kept a safe under lock and key supposedly full of incriminating files. If Sarah wanted to uncover her husband's criminal activity, she'd have to open that safe. But 
She knew cracking it open could put her and her children's lives in danger. If all the stories he told were true, Fred was probably involved with some terrible people. Sarah wanted out, so she sought the advice of several divorce attorneys, but she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Fred often threatened to take the kids if she ever tried to leave him. He had the contacts and connections to get anything he wanted. It didn't matter how sad of a story Sarah told. If she wanted out, she'd have to prove his criminal activity. She needed to get into that safe. But Fred had his own plans for ending his marriage. He took out three life insurance policies on Sarah, totaling $1.7 million, naming him as the primary benefactor if and when something happened to her. While Sarah worked on cracking the combination, she hired a private investigator to tail Fred. She suspected he was cheating on her, and her suspicions were confirmed. He was seeing a young single woman in the city, but a cheating husband wasn't Sarah's primary concern. What was upsetting was that it wasn't enough to win full custody of her kids. Finally, Sarah obtained the safe code and rifled through Fred's secret documents. It was a treasure trove of evidence, more than she dared hope for. Paperwork outlining his shady dealings sat alongside mysterious vials and several bags of cash. She made copies of his files and slipped them to her sister, just in case. As Sarah played P.I. in her own home, Atlanta PD was already looking into Fred's shady businesses. They knew the kind of clients he represented and the people he surrounded himself with. Most of their investigation hovered around an Atlanta nightclub. They believed there was more than cocktails being shaken and stirred. From what they'd been able to find out, Fred and two others ran it as a front for violent drug dealers. The stakes were ramping up, and his criminal partners knew Sarah was itching to leave Fred, which meant she had become a liability. A messy divorce case for a high-profile attorney might draw unnecessary attention. She had to go. Two days before Thanksgiving, Sarah and the kids drove down to Florida for the holiday. They stopped at the Tampa airport to pick up Fred before joining her family in Bradenton. Fred flew back Saturday morning, leaving Sarah and the kids to make the nine-hour drive on their own the next day. He called her dad about 15 minutes after they left on Sunday morning to ask what time she was planning to be home. Her father told him she thought she'd be pulling in by 10 that night. Her father, John, waited for Sarah to call that night. Hours went by and he eventually decided to call himself, but the line was busy, so he tried again a few minutes later. Still busy. Shortly after midnight, Florida police knocked on his door and delivered the horrifying news. Meanwhile, Alabama police caught up with Fred. He was spending the night at a Montgomery hotel claiming he had a client meeting in town the next morning. But to the average bystander, the news of his wife's death hit him hard. He was hysterically crying at the funeral and was so overwrought that he agreed Mike and Ricky were better off with their grandparents in Florida. Investigators were working on a theory that Sarah's murder was either a robbery gone wrong or it had something to do with Fred's work as a high-profile lawyer. Maybe one of his cases led a disgruntled criminal to his doorstep. A month after his wife's murder, Fred tried to kill himself in a Florida hotel, and he left a note for his sons. Listen to a couple of the more interesting paragraphs. I know your loss was bad, but mine was really worse. The press has made me feel like a suspect. I shouldn't be. The torture has weakened me to the point where I can't take it anymore. I want to die. But 
He didn't. His father-in-law found him and rushed him to the hospital. Back in Georgia, police were digging into his business dealings, a trail that led them to Eddie Lawrence, the kind of guy you wouldn't bring home for dinner. Imagine their surprise when they learned the two men were so close they shared an office address. And Fred had even loaned him $70,000 in 1991. But Eddie had made a colossal mistake, one they used to their advantage. He had cut a series of bogus checks, which opened the door for his arrest. And while he was sitting in jail, he got to talking. And police informants said Eddie had something to do with Sarah's death. Meanwhile, they questioned Eddie's secretary, who happened to be Curtis's sister. And she said Eddie came looking for a hired gun a few weeks back and eventually hired her brother for the job. Apparently, he promised Curtis $5,000 and a lot of cocaine to take out Sarah, but leave the kids alone. It took months and a plea deal, but eventually, Eddie came clean and testified that Fred ordered Sarah's hit. She threatened to divorce him and blow the lid off his illicit business. According to Eddie, Fred wanted his kids to watch the murder. He said they'd eventually get over it, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In exchange, he was supposed to get thousands of dollars in cash, and Fred promised to invest $900,000 in their businesses. With his cronies in jail, Fred was falling apart with anxiety. He knew it was only a matter of time before he was behind bars for one thing or another. And he was right. In 1993, less than a year after Sarah was shot, he was arrested for money laundering and racketeering. The murder charge came later. In 1994, he was officially convicted on federal racketeering charges and given life in prison. It took three more years for him to be charged and convicted for masterminding his wife's murder, which added another life sentence without parole. And while he escaped the death penalty, one Atlanta journalist thinks his prison sentence was a fate worse than death. Bill Torpy, who covered the Tokars story extensively in the early 90s, believes Fred's history as a lawyer put a target on his back. On the outside, he'd been a high-profile, big-talking lawyer. On the inside, the inmates beat and threatened him if he didn't volunteer to take their appeal cases. But a man like him knew when to shut up and listen, and he learned a few things about what his fellow inmates had done before the cops caught up to them. Information he was more than eager to share with prosecutors to help them close cases across the country. Maybe he did it out of the goodness of his heart, but more likely it was because he knew enough about the system to work it for favors. He was rewarded with a cushy private cell with cable TV and a bathroom. But just years into his sentence, he developed chronic pain due to a brain disease that left him wheelchair-bound. He also suffered from crippling anxiety, was forced to wear diapers, and became painfully thin and frail. Three times he tried to reduce his sentence and was denied on all three occasions. Sadly, he outlived his youngest son, Mike, who died in April 2020. You could say Mike was his father's final victim. He had the makings of a successful writer. On the 20th anniversary of his mother's murder, he wrote about it for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution under the mentoring eye of the reporter who'd written so much about his family's troubles over the years. He titled it, We Survived, Thanks to Six Amazing Aunts, His Mother's Sisters. From there, he went on to earn a master's degree from Columbia in New York City, and he wrote for a lot of high-profile media outlets, including the television series 
Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen. But his horrible PTSD and the memories of his mother's death plagued him his whole life, and he found it hard to find steady work. In the spring of 2020, he headed west for a fresh start. With his dog as his only companion, he drove from Florida to LA. But his timing was off. The COVID-19 pandemic was just starting, and he struggled to find anywhere to stay on the journey. He finally reached his aunt in LA, but her recent bout with cancer left her highly vulnerable to COVID. Mike didn't want to risk anything, so he stayed in his car. He felt weak from the drive and eventually made it to a hospital where doctors found blood clots in his knees. The clots spread to his lungs, and he passed away from a pulmonary embolism at only 31 years old. Rick stayed in Florida where the boys had been raised by their mother's family. He worked as an emergency medical technician, a choice no doubt inspired by his early trauma. Fast Fred never saw or spoke to his children ever again after his arrest in 1993. And 27 years later, he died of natural causes alone in a Pennsylvania prison. He was 67. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.